BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In the science revolution this week, is Trump burying the pandemic and will it work? Dr. Michael Mann is here about the Greenland ice sheet losing one million tons a minute. He'll explain what that means to us. Dr. Michael Greger drops by on one of the most important questions right now. What can be done to stop the spread of animal-derived diseases? And director Dan Partland is here on his new film, Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. So stay tuned. There is one guy whose opinions I pay very, very careful attention to when it comes to everything from nutrition to food safety to public health issues. That's Dr. Michael Gregory. He runs a website called nutritionfacts.org. I've played fragments of clips from his very short two, three, four minute YouTube pieces many, many times over the years. I have learned so much from Dr. Greger and I'm constantly promoting his work. He's got a new book out in paperback. It's called How to Survive a Pandemic. The Twitter handle is nutrition underscore facts. And as I said, the website is nutritionfacts.org. And sure enough, Dr. Michael Greger is here with us. If we can make our phones work, Dr. Greger, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you for joining us. Tell us about the relationship between animal-borne diseases generally and COVID-19 and this pandemic that we're experiencing right now. You know, over the last few decades, hundreds of human pathogens have emerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. You say, wait a second, emerged from where? Mostly from animals. The AIDS virus is blamed on the butchering of primates and the bushmeat trade in Africa. Mad cow disease was because we turned cows and cannibals. SARS and COVID-19 have been traced back to the exotic wild animal trade. You know, but our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, arose not from some backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely made in the USA on pig operations in the United States. Now, thankfully, swine flu only killed about a half million people, but the next time, we might not be so lucky. So most of the diseases that we're struggling with, and I know, you know, some of the older diseases, smallpox, tuberculosis, syphilis, gonorrhea, they all go back to animals as well. I mean, we've had this long-standing relationship with these, is it zoonotic or zoonotic diseases for centuries, for millennia. First of all, why do they spread so efficiently in human populations? And secondly, what human behavior is it that keeps producing these plagues? Oh, well, the spread is thanks to the fact that people are becoming infectious, contagious before they start showing symptoms, which makes it very difficult to tamp down. But in terms of what we're doing, when we overcrowd thousands of animals in these cramped, filthy football field-sized sheds in these factory farms to lie, you know, beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist, I mean, it's just a breeding ground for disease. I mean, the sheer number of animals, the overcrowding, the stress crippling their immune systems, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs. Lungs, lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight, put all these factors together. What you really have is kind of a perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called super strains of influenza. The bottom line is that it's not worth risking the lives of millions of people for the sake of cheaper chicken. 
If Americans, by and large, stopped eating animal products and thus reduced the demand for, substantially reduced the demand for factory farms and industrial meat operations and, and bushmeat for that matter, if we were to do that, A, would that help reduce the probability of future zoonotic animal-caused disease epidemics like the one we're experiencing right now, which came out of bats, would it reduce that? And number two, would Americans or humans survive eating a diet that does not include animal products at all? In this new age of emerging diseases, we now have billions of feathered and curly-tailed test tubes for viruses to incubate and mutate within, you know, billions more spins at pandemic roulette. So the smaller we can make those numbers, the lower the risk may be. And then can we eat plant-based? In fact, not only could we, it would reduce our risk not only of chronic diseases like heart disease, but reduce the uh, underlying risk factors for the current pandemics, severity and death, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. These are the predisposing factors that are increasing people's risk right now, all of which can be controlled or even reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet and lifestyle. So if people renounce all animal products, including cheese, eggs, milk, as well as flesh foods, you're saying that they get healthier always? Of course, it depends on what you replace it with, right? Some of the worst foods right. on the planet are technically plant-based. Soda is plant-based. Potato chips are plant-based. But so I encourage people to move towards whole food plant-based diets, centering their diets around the healthiest foods out there. Fruits, vegetables, legumes, which are beans, split peas, cheese, lentils, whole grains, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs, and spices. Basically, real food that grows out of the ground from fields, not factories. Those are our healthiest choices. Now, I don't want to suggest that becoming a vegan is going to save you from COVID or coronavirus, and I know you're not suggesting that either. We're, we're, we're having this conversation in the context of how do we stop the next pandemic, the next time this kind of thing goes nuts. Is there any evidence that diet is associated with risk factors for getting severely ill with COVID-19? Look, you don't even have to be obese. Just having a BMI of 28 or more, which is about 175 pounds of the average American height, puts you at nearly six times the odds of suffering a severe COVID-19 course. And in the United States, the average BMI exceeds 29. So even being skinnier than the average American, you can have so much excess body fat still put you at extremely high risk for suffering a severe course. So, you know, putting in place healthier habits right now protecting the future against diseases and right now against the infectious disease threat. Tell me about mTOR and how some of these animal products trigger actions in the body that might not be useful or healthy for us long term. Oh, well, yeah. So mTOR is kind of the engine of aging enzyme. In fact, that's the subject of my next book, How Not to Age, which will be out December 22, 2022. There are certain amino acids that are concentrated in animal protein, which accelerate the aging process, can increase our risk of disease associated with old age, such as cancer and heart disease. And we can reduce our intake of those specific amino acids by shifting over to plant protein, which has as an additional bonus, not the bad baggage associated with protein from animal sources, such as the saturated fat and the cholesterol and the hormones, etc. Since food is a package deal, we can get our nutrients from healthier sources, predominantly from the uh, produce aisle, but plant foods in general, eating at the bottom of the food chain, which is our exposure to industrial pollutants, has a number of side benefits beyond just the chronic diseases that are laying waste to the American public.
What's your best advice for Americans to just more broadly stay healthy in these difficult times? We should really take this opportunity to get sufficient sleep, keep active, reduce stress, stay connected out here remotely to friends and family, eating a healthy diet. If you ever wanted to start a meditation practice or start an exercise program, really clean out the cupboards, let's all take this time to set the healthier habits, which will not only protect us and our families in the future against chronic disease now against infections, but also prevent future infections as well. Yeah, view it as an opportunity. Dr. Michael Greger, MD, physician, author, internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. His new book, How to Survive a Pandemic, nutritionfacts.org, nutrition underscore facts. The book is available wherever you find fine books. Dr. Greger, thanks so much for being with us today. Keep up the great work. Thanks, you too. On the line with us is the director and producer of a brand new movie about Donald Trump. It's titled Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. The website is unfitfilm.com. Dan Partland is the director and producer, and he's on the line with us. Dan, welcome to the program. Tell us about the movie. The movie was really born out of something that I think everybody saw right in the early days of the Trump campaign in 2016, in the early days of the presidency, which is there was such a divided way in terms of how the public saw it. Some people saw immediately a strong, charismatic leader, confidence, and some people saw a guy who was weak and insecure and a bundle of nerves all the time and anxiety. And I just thought that was really interesting and tried to get some insight into what the mental health community sees in his behavior. And what did you learn? <laughs> well, you know, what I learned is that there was this feeling I had throughout the coverage of the Trump presidency that there was something missing in the coverage, that there was something that wasn't being said. It was, it was unsatisfying. Every week there was a new scandal and very little insight connecting because there was an obvious sameness to these scandals, but nobody seemed to be talking about it. And what I found out is that there's a reason why nobody's talking about it, is that it's a psychological phenomenon, it's Trump's psychology that unifies these theories, and that the mental health community was, in fact, gagged, muzzled from talking about it in the run-up to the 2016 campaign. Does Trump's psychology, in the opinion of the mental health professionals that you interviewed and you know what you put together in this film, we're talking to Dan Partland. He's got a new movie out. It's out September 1st. It's titled Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump, the website unfitfilm.com. How is Donald Trump's psychology consequentially different from that of Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Richard Nixon, the Republicans who preceded him, who have basically pursued the exact policies, you know, sell off public lands, kneecap the EPA, cut back on enforcement by the IRS, promote militarism and violent policing, stigmatize and, you know, freak out about people of color, et cetera. I mean, I can't think of any Trump policies specifically that aren't broadly in line with the historic republic, you know, outside of his rhetoric against so-called free trade, but his actions really have just, you know, I mean, he hasn't done anything consequential. How is he different than the other Republicans? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So the mental health professionals, I'll give a broader context for the film, but the mental health professionals in the film speak openly about potential diagnoses that you could see in Trump, and they explain how they arrive at that behavior, at those diagnoses, which is basically from observing behavior. 
So the reason they were gagged in the run up to the 2016 election that I referred to is that the APA, American Psychiatric Association, has a longstanding rule, ethical rule, guideline called the Goldwater Rule, which came out of an incident that happened in the 1964 campaign when mental health professionals were commenting quite recklessly about the mental stability of Barry Goldwater. Turns out Goldwater was stable and that the comments were really irresponsible. They were being made without appropriate knowledge of Goldwater. They violated the ethics of the day. They speculated a lot about his inner life that you really couldn't know without having seen him in a clinical setting. The diagnostic criteria that mental health professionals use in the film are really based on observable behavior. And that's really how we make behavioral diagnoses. And the diagnosis that is explored in the film is called malignant narcissism. It's a very, very serious diagnosis that it's more of a syndrome that comprises four separate diagnoses. And when they work together, there's really quite a devastating effect. It's a diagnosis that really came out of the post-World War II era and legendary psychiatrist Eric Fromm and his effort to try to understand Hitler. So the phenomenon of, or the syndrome of malignant narcissism is really comprised of four main elements, which is narcissism, paranoia, antisocial personality disorder, and sadism. And the different psychologists and psychiatrists in the film walk you through how those four diagnoses really work together to become quite a powerful constellation of traits that really prohibit someone with a diagnosis that's really incapable of thinking about people outside of what it is they can do for them. I think there's a brutality to Trump that is on display every day. It comes from the lack of empathy, which is part of an antisocial personality disorder, the paranoia, the narcissism, and obviously there's a cruelty that I think we've seen on display that qualifies as sadism. Yeah, I totally get it. We're talking with Dan Partland, the director and producer of this new film about the psychology of Donald Trump. It's titled Unfit. Unfitfilm.com is the website. You can find all the information. And uh, duty to warn, number two, is the Twitter handle. And Dan, why duty to warn? So while the Goldwater Rule, on the one hand, prohibits mental health professionals from talking about, from politicizing mental health diagnoses, the counterbalancing ethical guideline also by the APA is called the Tarasoft Rule. And that enshrines the, the duty to warn, which is that if a mental health professional has knowledge of imminent danger that they see, it's their duty and this has been enshrined in law as well, not just the trade association, professional association. It is their responsibility under the law to speak up. So you have these two countervailing ethical guidelines, and the psychologists and psychiatrists in the film believe that the duty to warn is much more important than the Goldwater guideline, which is misapplied here. Right, because the Goldwater Guideline is basically, let's not sully our, the reputation of our industry, essentially, or of our practice, whereas duty to warn is let's save lives. Absolutely. Yeah. The Goldwater yeah. Rule is somewhat antiquated. It really, the intention was good to keep from politicizing mental health. I think that's really, really important, but yeah. it doesn't really apply in this instance. 
So, Dan, how can people see the movie? Uh, we're talking uh, with the director and producer of Unfit, the new movie about the psychology of Donald Trump, unfitfilm.com. It will be streaming and on-demand services. Every cable company and every streamer in the, in, uh, the country should have it on demand September 1st. Wow, that's cool. Okay, the movie is Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. Dan Partland is the producer and director. Dan, I wish you the very best with it. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you having me on. Good talking with you. This is, uh, you know, wake up America, right? You've got a mentally ill person in the White House. Sponsoring the interview this week is... As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tom Hartman here with you, and I'm so happy to have with me the uh, smartest man I know, the distinguished professor of meteorology, the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of several books, including The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy, the recipient of the Tyler Prize, Dr. Michael Mann. His uh, website, michaelmann.net. Man has two N's at the end, and his Twitter handle, Michael E. Mann. And Dr. Mann, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. The news headline in The Guardian a week or so ago was the Greenland ice sheet is losing one million tons of water per minute. What does that mean? That's hard to wrap my head around. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's good to be with you. And unfortunately, that is true. We are seeing unprecedented rates of melting of both the major ice sheets, the Greenland ice sheet and the most susceptible part of the Antarctic ice sheet, so West Antarctic ice sheet. And that's happening decades ahead of schedule relative to the projections from climate models just a decade or so ago. So the good news, (laughs) as bad as that sounds, is that there is no evidence that we are yet past sort of the tipping point where we are committed to the melting of those ice sheets. There were some headlines about a week ago that implied that we had crossed that tipping point. And scientists who study the dynamics of ice sheets tell us that's not true. In particular with Greenland, it's sort of shaped like a bowl with the mountains at the exterior and then lower elevation sort of valley in the middle. And because of that, unlike the Antarctic ice sheet, it's very unlikely that it will continue to have in very large pieces out into the ocean. What happens is as you start to lose parts of the periphery of the ice sheet, it establishes a new, what we call a grounding line, where the bedrock and the ice come into contact. And so it's sort of a bit of a, um, a stopper valve. It's unlikely to collapse 
catastrophically. That having been said, if we warm the planet up much beyond where we are, then we do think that we come close, if not cross the line, where we do ultimately commit to the melting of most of the Greenland ice sheet, most of the West Antarctic ice sheet, enough ice melt to give us about 20 or more feet of global sea level rise. And obviously that would be catastrophic. Yeah, to say the very least. A week or so ago, there was an event, a weather event in Iowa. Actually, it, it spanned several states. That was a word I had never heard. And maybe I'm, I'm just poorly informed or something, but this Dereco, D-E-R-E-C-H-O, that left 100,000 people without power, knocked back mail service. People weren't getting their medications. Thousands of family and families in makeshift tents. It was a full-blown disaster. What is a Dereco, yeah. and why have we not heard about them before now? Or yeah, I, I think one? it's Derecho. So a few you. years ago, we all thought it was something that you uh, get at a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> but no, in reality, <laughs> okay. it's an atmospheric phenomenon. You know, in some ways, it's like a tornado. But rather than twisting winds, it's an entire squall line of thunderstorms that are extremely broad, that can reach across much of the Midwest, for example, and just comes sweeping across the country. And so you get these, this line, literally this sweeping line of tornadic winds, tornado strength winds. It arises for the same reason, ultimately, that an intense thunderstorms and tornadoes and hurricanes, like the one we have just seen bear down on the Gulf Coast. They derive their energy in substantial part from the heat that's released when you evaporate moisture. And in particular, in this case, with a derecho, when you have a very cold or relatively cool, let's say, Arctic air mass, and it comes down and it meets one of these very humid, subtropical sort of Gulf of Mexico air masses that contrast in air masses along with the amount of energy that's available with all that moisture leads to a lot of an instability in the atmosphere, towering clouds and very strong storms. And these derechos appear to be coming more common. In fact, Washington, D.C. a few years ago experienced something much like this. It was a derecho that actually happened during an historic heat wave. You may remember, folks who lived in the D.C. area, you have unprecedented sort of triple-digit heat indices, and all of a sudden you lose all the electricity because of this derecho, this storm. Ironically, the same atmospheric conditions that led to the derecho responsible for the extreme heat, the very warm, humid air mass that was there at the time. And so all of a sudden you're without electricity, you're without air conditioning. And it's sort of an example of the types of surprises and unintended consequences that we worry about, things that we haven't really gamed out that we wouldn't have thought about until they happen, like unprecedented heat followed by the loss of electricity because of these very strong winds associated with these derechos. So we think climate change is making the conditions more favorable for them, and they're devastating, right? We saw how devastating that storm was for people who live in the Midwest. Iowans destroyed much of the agriculture that was there at the time. Crops were destroyed by the storm. These are the sorts of, you know, when people talk about what's going to cost us if we get off fossil fuels, it's costing us way more by remaining addicted to fossil fuels. And this is just one example of why. And I say that as we see a devastating storm making landfall in the east and we see the west literally on fire. So just to, just to summarize, these derechos are caused by extraordinarily warm, moist air rising. 
and it, typically that would be associated with a tropical climate or a semi-tropical climate. But yeah. because the Midwest has been heating up as a result of global warming, and the Midwest is rich in moisture, get, they get a lot of rain, their soil is moist, and so that soil heats up unusually high, thus evaporating unusual amounts of moisture and transporting heat up into the atmosphere where it hits cold air coming in, and boom, you've got a derecho. Is that it, and that's the mechanism that global warming is, you know, simply by warming up the area, it's producing this? More or less what you just said, you have more of these very warm, humid air masses and climate change allows for more humidity in the atmosphere. A warmer atmosphere holds more humidity. So you've got a warmer, mm. moister, more unstable atmosphere. And the match that lights that fire is the collision with a cool, dry air mass, because then you get these very large contrasts, all of a sudden temperature, really strong sort of fronts. And those Contrast and temperature really start to get the atmosphere rising. From air rises over the cold air vertically. You get this deep convection. You get very strong storms and very strong winds. And so one of the crucial ingredients there are the very warm, humid air masses that we expect to see more of in a warmer climate. You're always going to have that source of relatively cool, dry air in the Arctic. That's always going to be there, but it's basically colliding with increasingly warmer, moister air masses creating those conditions for these derechos, thunderstorms, tornadoes, and other types of extreme weather events. If Biden gets elected and does something about the climate, is there still time? Yeah, absolutely. There is, as I like to say, great urgency. We have to act now. There is agency. There is still time to act. And if we vote on this issue, we vote on climate in the upcoming election, we can make a real difference here. Amen. Dr. Michael Mann, thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for dropping by today. It's always great talking with you. Thank you, my friend. Michael Mann with two N's dot net is his website. And Twitter handle is Michael E. Mann, uh, M-A-N-N. And uh, his latest book, The Madhouse Effect, it's absolutely brilliant. You need this. to get it. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.